Let's bow our heads now and pray for God to teach us as we study his word. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Father, we pray that we would find your word to be just as you say it is, a lamp to our feet to keep us from stumbling and a light for our path to show us the way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the strange things about life in America right now is that political trust is declining, it's on the way down, while economic trust is rising. Political trust is declining. According to the Pew Research Center, only 25% of Americans now say they trust the federal government. That's down from 75% back in 1964, from 75% to 25%. But when it comes to economic trust, we're more trusting than ever. A recent New Yorker article explains it like this. The modern sharing economy is premised on leaps of faith in perfect strangers. We rely on crowdsourced restaurant reviews on Yelp. We climb into a stranger's car through Uber. And we stay at someone else's house via Airbnb. The article turns to a recently published book called Why Trust Matters to seek out some historical background on the subject of trust. The author of that book says, one could tell the story of human civilization as a story of how we learned to trust one another. One could tell the story of human civilization as a story of how we learned to trust one another. That's a big claim. And it's a claim that finds support in the Bible. In Bible times, people were highly conscious of the importance of trust. They lived with the real threat that raiders could attack them, kill off their menfolk, and ride away with the plunder, which would include the women and children. And to guard against that kind of devastation, a custom developed that was designed to establish trust between different parties. It was called a covenant. Covenant making was literally called covenant cutting. That was because when covenants were agreed, there was typically a cutting ceremony, as you might remember from our time in Genesis 15. Animals were cut in half. The covenant participants would then walk between those split animal carcasses. It was a way of saying, may this kind of gory death happen to me if I break the terms of this covenant. Now that might sound gruesome to us, to our ears, but in the ancient world, cutting a covenant was usually the sane and sensible thing to do. Covenants created trusting relationships. Now, God, the God of the Bible, the created God, is like a tourist who speaks the language of the country he's visiting. He's not like a tourist who goes to a foreign country and speaks his own language loudly and slowly in the hope he'll be understood. No, God 
speaks the language of the country he's visiting. God graciously uses human cultural practices to reveal himself to humanity. God uses human cultural practices such as covenants to make himself known. When people in Old Testament times discovered that God wanted a covenant relationship with them, they'd have understood that immediately. He was talking their language. By proposing a covenant, God was communicating clearly to them. He was making it clear that he, the creator of the universe, really wanted to establish a trusting relationship with them. In today's Bible passage, God reminds Abraham that they already have a covenant relationship in place. He says at the start of verse 4, my covenant is with you. But he also adds new details to that existing covenant between himself and Abraham. Here in Genesis 17, the covenant moves forward. It develops. And that makes this passage extremely significant. The writer of Genesis highlights its significance with three separate verses marking out when this is happening. Verse 1, verse 17, and verse 24 all mention Abraham's age at this point in time. That's an indication of the importance of this event. We typically ask how old Barack Obama was when he became president, or when he married Michelle, because of the importance of those events. We don't ask how old he was when he made a public address to the people of Estonia, because, apologies if you're someone of Estonian extraction, that just wasn't one of his most important speeches. We want to know how old someone was when big things happened in their life. And the threefold noting of Abraham's age in this passage shows us there's an event taking place that deserves our attention. Another sign of the importance of this passage is that this is when Abram becomes Abraham and Sarai becomes Sarah. That's huge. A name change event is a pivotal event. So we find those markers of significance in this passage. And that's not surprising when you consider that this covenant between God and Abraham will set down the terms of relationship between God and his people for 500 years until the covenant moves forward again at Mount Sinai with Moses. Even then, the covenant with Abraham doesn't fall by the wayside. The heart of the covenant with Abraham endures. Luke chapter 1, as we heard in our first Bible reading, connects the arrival of Mary's son, the mighty saviour, with the covenant God made with Abraham centuries beforehand. The heart of the covenant with Abraham endures forever. This Bible passage reveals what it means to be in a trusting relationship with the creator of the universe. For the rest of the sermon, we're going to explore the terms of that relationship by looking first at the covenant offer and then at the covenant obligation. So let's begin with the covenant offer. Please look down with me to verses 7 and 8. God says to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. What does God offer 
human beings through this covenant with Abraham. It's a two-pronged offer. God offers himself and he offers a homeland. Himself and a homeland. We'll look at both prongs of the offer in turn. First, God offers to be Abraham's personal God. At the end of verse 7, he says he wants to be God to you and to your offspring after you. At the end of verse 8, he underlines that by saying, and I will be their God. What an offer. Think how wonderful it is for God, the one true God, the creator God, to be our God. He guides us. He comforts us. He loves us with a love we can rejoice in. He teaches us. He chastens us when we go astray like a loving parent. How good it is to have him as our God. Wendy Seifert, an Australian journalist, is the author of a book titled The Sunny Nihilist, How a Meaningless Life Can Make You Truly Happy. She's written, Standing on the side of the road, I looked at the sky and thought, I'm just a chunk of meat hurtling through space on a rock. Pointless, futile, meaningless. It was one of the most comforting revelations of my life. She goes on to say, once you make peace with just being a lump of meat on a rock, you can stop stressing and appreciate the rock itself. But that's not only plain wrong because we're eternal beings, we're not just chunks of meat, it's also unlivable. How can you care deeply about anyone or anything if you privately think the whole universe is pointless, futile and meaningless? Wendy Seifert says a meaningless life can make you happy. That is not true. We need the, the maker of the universe, the maker of everything, to be in our lives as our personal God. That is what will make you truly happy. But God doesn't just offer himself to Abraham and his descendants. He also offers Abraham and his descendants land. In verse 8, he says, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Sometimes I think it's true to say Christians overlook this land theme in the Bible. It can be treated as something that's rather Old Testament-ish. We get the impression that all that really matters, both now and in eternity, is the relationship with God that we've just been thinking about. But God knows us better than that. He knows what we need. In his love, he, he doesn't want human beings to relate to him with a kind of mystical tunnel vision that finds zero enjoyment in anything other than him. Our creator made us in such a way that we enjoy physical land and the, all the other good gifts that go with land, such as the tasty food that grows on it. God wants us to enjoy those gifts. Imagine that I raised my son Solly to love me so much that he didn't love any material things. Sports, no. Toys, no. Playgrounds, no. Candy, no. He just loved me. That would not be a healthy father-son relationship. You would not look at that relationship and think, 
Solly's love for his dad has reached true purity and perfection because he has no time for physical things. He only has time for his dad. No, you'd think that relationship needs an intervention. It's important to say that in this passing world, love for God may well lead us into situations that prevent us from enjoying gifts we were created to enjoy. The Apostle Paul was frequently locked up in prison because of his love for Jesus and his desire to share that love with others. During one of his imprisonments, he says he has no regrets about that. He says he suffered the loss of all things, but when he weighs them up against Jesus, he says they're like rubbish in comparison with knowing Jesus. But here's the thing, when Paul looks beyond this world to the world to come, he doesn't anticipate suffering the loss of all things other than Jesus. It's the opposite. He he anticipates receiving Jesus and all things. That's what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And in the same Bible chapter, Romans chapter 8, Paul picks out land as one of those things. He speaks of, quote, creation being liberated from its bondage to decay. That's Romans 8 verse 21. Paul was prepared, if necessary, to deny himself land in this current world because he looked forward to land liberated from decay in the world to come. The ESV Study Bible makes this comment on Romans 8 verse 21. It says, Creation will be transformed and freed from the effects of sin and will instantly become far more beautiful, productive and easy to live in than one can ever imagine. What a great comment on Romans 8.21. Creation will be transformed and freed from the effects of sin and will instantly become far more beautiful, productive and easy to live in than one can ever imagine. That's the land Paul was looking forward to. Now when we look closely at the offer of land to Abraham, Both in this passage and that other covenant passage, chapter 15, we find that Abraham isn't actually offered this world land at all. Right from the start, he's offered an eternal version of the land. Please look down to verse 8, where God says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. If that promise had been a this-world promise to Abraham, then God didn't keep it, because Abraham never possessed all the land of Canaan. But God isn't a promise-breaking God. Back in Genesis 15, God had openly told Abraham that it was essential for the land of Canaan to remain in the hands of its current Amorite inhabitants For another 400 years, at least another 400 years. Well, Abraham knew he wouldn't be around when those 400 years were finally up. He understood that when God promised him the land of Canaan, 
God was speaking of a future inheritance that he'd receive after his death. In the words of verse 8, it would be an everlasting possession. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament confirms that Abraham was, quote, longing for a better country. Like Paul, Abraham was looking forward to a world liberated from its bondage to decay. He knew the land would only be his after his death, and he knew it would be better land, a country without thistles or tears, a newly minted version of Canaan. Well, before we move on from the offer of the covenant to the obligations of the covenant, let's bring together what we've learned so far about trusting God. We've seen that far from inviting people to trust him in a vague, undefined way, God instead gives us a clearly explained offer that we can understand. He offers ongoing relationship with himself, and he also offers the gift of land. To trust in God is to trust that he'll fulfill that two-pronged offer. And we've seen that the land being offered isn't land in this current world, it's the everlasting land of the world to come. It's worth saying before we move on that trusting in that future land doesn't mean it's wrong to enjoy land in this world. Whatever land we have in this world should be considered a good gift from God, and 1 Timothy 6 teaches us that it's right for God's gifts to be richly enjoyed. But having said that, trusting in future land, land beyond this current world, surely does mean that we shouldn't set our hearts on land in this world. There's better land to come. And with that in mind, we shouldn't pursue land in this world unless it will further our primary goal of glorifying Jesus. Well, let's move on at this point to the second half of the sermon, covenant obligations. Covenant obligations. If you were here when we studied Genesis 15, you might remember that in the covenant ceremony described in that chapter, only God walked through the separated pieces of the animal carcasses. God represented by that smoking oven and the flaming torch walked through the animal pieces. Abraham didn't. It was God's way of saying, I'll do the dying for both of us. I'll do the dying for both of us to make sure my covenant promise is fulfilled. From our vantage point in salvation history, we can see how that mysterious covenant ceremony points forward to the cross of Jesus, where God incarnate received the curse of the covenant that we deserved. God incarnate died a gory death, a cursed death, so all who trust in him might be spared the death our sins require. So God does all the heavy lifting. But when we turn to Genesis 17, it's plain to see that there are covenant obligations for human beings. God isn't an anything goes kind of God. He has expectations. 
In our relationship with God, trust cuts both ways. God tells Abraham to be circumcised. It's a covenant obligation. Circumcision, we all know what that is, am I right? I don't need to uh, explain what that is. Give me some nodding heads here. Circumcision is hereby made an obligation for Abraham and the men of his household. Now, circumcision raises some big questions, and uh, we'll get to them in a moment. But there's a basic truth we can grasp immediately, which is this truth that trust cuts both ways. That's not to say the obligations on human beings are equivalent to the sacrifice God made at the cross. The obligations on humanity are light indeed in comparison with the sacrifice made at the cross. What's more, it's essential to see that the rewards of the covenant aren't earned by going along with these covenant obligations. In Romans 4, Paul points out that Abraham had already received the gift of righteousness while he was still uncircumcised. And Abraham received that righteousness solely on the basis of the future death of God's Son. Without the cross of Christ, it would be impossible for human beings to earn the rewards of the covenant. We don't earn those rewards. They are given to us on the basis of the cross. So there's plenty for us to keep in mind when we read verse 14, but we can't avoid verse 14 altogether. It reveals that in Abraham's time, a man would be excluded from God's people if he refused circumcision. In Abraham's time, a man would be excluded from God's people, shut out from the covenant, if he refused circumcision. Covenants create relationships, trusting relationships. In the covenant between God and Abraham, trust cuts both ways. On the divine side, the covenant looks forward to the cross. On the human side, the covenant requires male circumcision. Trust cuts both ways. Let's study this covenant obligation more closely. Please look down with me to verses 10 and 11. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Abraham would probably have heard about circumcision already, thanks to his time in Egypt, where it was sometimes practiced. And this particular form of cutting would have made sense to Abraham as a way for him to seal the covenant. That's because his own reproductive organ is involved in the fulfillment of the covenant. As we heard during the reading of Genesis 17, God's covenant offer is made not only to Abraham, but also to his descendants. The first of those descendants will be Isaac, mentioned in verse 19, and Isaac hasn't yet been born. He hasn't yet been conceived. So circumcision is a highly appropriate sign of the covenant. 
Abraham is being told to consecrate to God the part of his anatomy that God will use to fulfill the covenant through the conception of Isaac. Circumcision would certainly have meant some short-lived pain for Abraham. But 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, God's commands are not burdensome. And that's true of circumcision. Look at Abraham's response in verse 17. He's just been told about this covenant obligation, circumcision, and he's also been told that Sarah will give birth to a child. How does he respond? Does he say to God, you want me to be what? To be circumcised? No. Instead, he's filled with laughter at the thought that finally he and Sarah will have a child, even though he'll be 100 years old and Sarah will be 90. By the way, even though Abraham and Sarah would have been considered old and past the age of childbearing, we shouldn't picture Sarah as a wrinkly elderly lady. Life expectancy was different at that time. The aging process was different at that time. Just a few chapters before this chapter, Sarah was considered so beautiful that the king of Egypt tried to take her as his wife. And a few chapters after this chapter, another foreign king tries to take Sarah as his wife. So yes, she was old enough for pregnancy to be miraculous, the Bible speaks of the deadness of her womb, but her body wasn't geriatric. Her body would have been able to cope with pregnancy. But to go back to the main point, Abraham doesn't raise a word against circumcision. and He speedily implements this covenant obligation, as we can see from verse 23 onwards. There's no sign that he considers it burdensome. Trust cuts both ways when it comes to humanity's relationship with God, but the cutting on Abraham's side wasn't a burdensome obligation. Now, once again, we need to use a very helpful rule of thumb for interpreting the Bible. I mentioned it last week, which is that the meaning for us now is the meaning for them then made suitable for our own period of salvation history. And that rule of thumb is essential for rightly understanding the meaning of Genesis 17 for us today. In the New Testament, there is a whole book, the book of Galatians, devoted to getting the point across that circumcision is no longer an obligation for God's people. But we shouldn't think that relationship with God is obligation-free in our New Covenant period of salvation history. Trust still cuts both ways. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus commissions his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, Jesus says, to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. God gives his people commands. Keeping them is a covenant obligation. They're good for us. They're not burdensome. And yet, because of our sinful nature we may find those commands hard to keep. But God expects us to obey Jesus' commands by the power of his Spirit. It's not about earning salvation. It's about pleasing the God we love. It's a covenant obligation. One biblical way to think about this life of obedience is to see it as the circumcision of the heart 
prophet Jeremiah says to the people, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. He says, remove the foreskin of your hearts. In the New Testament, Paul says, circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Well, that's a covenant obligation for everyone who wants to follow Jesus. Trust cuts both ways. Has your heart been circumcised by the Spirit? Has your heart been circumcised by the Spirit of God? In verse 1 of today's passage, God tells Abraham, Walk before me and be blameless. The person whose heart has been circumcised by the Holy Spirit will say, Yes, that's the aim. That's what I want. I want to walk before God and be blameless. I'm serious about fighting sin by the power of the Spirit so that I can be blameless in God's sight as I walk before him. Are you on board with that? Walk before me and be blameless, God says. If you're not on board with that, if your heart is rebellious and you want to cling to sin without repentance, then you need God's Spirit to do business with your heart. Circumcise yourself to the Lord with God's help. Cut off the foreskin of your heart through the power of the Spirit. Trust cuts both ways. Let me say it again. God's commands aren't burdensome. They're for our good. Obeying God might feel like death because of our wrong, misguided desires. Obeying God might feel like losing your life. But he can be trusted to know what is good for us. His commands aren't burdensome. The cutting we experience cannot be compared to the cutting experienced by God on the cross. As the nails cut through the Son of God's hands and feet, he was burdened with the sin of the world and punished for it, even though he had lived a blameless life before God. Why was God the Son willing to suffer that death? Why was God the Father willing to let him suffer? It was so that all those who come to him for the good circumcision he offers would enjoy relationship with him forever in his new creation. What a salvation. What a saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see from your word that the covenant obligation of a circumcised heart is really another good offer that you make to us. It is good for us. We confess that we find it hard sometimes to obey your son Jesus' commands. Sometimes it can feel like death, but we believe his commands are good for us. And we long for this life that is blameless as we walk before you. 
please empower us by your Spirit. We pray, Father, that the hearts of the people here today and listening online would be circumcised by your Holy Spirit to the glory of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.